invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3. Chapter 3. And I want to begin to read at verse 9, reading to the end of verse 20. Romans chapter 3. Beginning to read at verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Thus far, would you then also turn with me in the back of your Psalter, Hymnal to the Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2. Question and answer three, four, and five. You'll find that on page 872 in the back of your book. 872, Lord's Day 2. You notice it begins with now with that part one in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1. We made that glorious confession of our faith. And now begins the section on misery, sin. As I reminded you, the catechism is divided up into three parts, sin, salvation, and service. And this afternoon, we begin the section on sin. So Lord's Day 2, question and answer 3. And I remind you, this is your own confession of faith, as it is mine. So how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 27, 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the first, the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we find it summarized in the creeds and confessions of the church. May God once again add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this afternoon. According to question and answer two of Lord's Day One, we did that the last time we were together, you'll remember, According to that question and answer, it is necessary for the sinner to know three things 
The question was, what must you know in order to live and to die joyfully or to die in the confidence, to die in the confidence of eternal salvation? What must you know? Three things. Guilt, grace, and gratitude, or if you will, sin, salvation, and service. And we learned last week from Lord's Day 1 that in order for the sinner to have that true comfort, in order for him to have the comfort that enables him to, to live and to die confidently, he must have a right knowledge of those three things. And it's also the purpose of the Catechism in its entirety to give us the teaching of the Holy Scriptures about those three things. I remind you again, Lord's Day 2 through 4 teach us of and are entitled man's misery or sin, if you will. And then beginning with Lord's Day 5 and continuing through to Lord's Day 31, we're taught about man's deliverance, salvation. And then from Lord's Day 32 on to the end of Lord's Day 52, all the remaining statements of faith of the Catechism deal with man's gratitude or necessary service. And all of the Catechism from question and answer 2 through to question and answer 129 focus on those three elements. <clears throat> An old Chinese proverb says that the journey of a thousand miles begins by taking that first small step. And now this afternoon, having our hearts and minds enlightened by the Holy Spirit, we begin our journey. We begin our journey from death to life. And we take that first small step by asking, if, as you say, in order for me to live and to die happily, I must first be made aware of the greatness of my sin and misery. How do I come to know about my sin and misery? That's the focus of this Lord's Day before us this afternoon. And so I want to, I want to minister God's word to you this afternoon using it as my theme, the misery of man, the misery of man. We want to fo focus first of all on God's law as source of our knowledge of misery. Then we want to examine God's law as norm for our daily living. And finally, we want to learn of God's law and our inability to observe that norm. So the misery of man, God's law as the source of the knowledge of that misery, God's law as our norm for daily living, and God's law and our inability to observe that norm. And so the first question of the Lord's Day reads, how do you come to know your misery? And now notice with me for a moment that question and answer two tells us that in order to die and to, to live and to die in the joy of the Lord, we need to know of our sin and misery. And yet here in question and answer three, it speaks not of man's sin, but only of his misery. And the choice of words, I believe, is significant. The Catechism wishes to convey to us an important concept here, and what is to be understood by us here is that the term misery must be understood in a broader sense in this question than in the last. In the context of this question, misery is to be understood as the all-encompassing consequence of sin. That's the Bible's definition of misery. The consequence of man's sin is our misery. Misery. It's a bit of an unsettling word, isn't it? Misery. How would we describe its meaning? Well, to rightly define and understand what is meant by man's misery, it may be helpful to think of the term of a, an exile, if you will, or an alien. You see, man is in exile. He has been driven out of the garden. 
That garden was God's home and God had chosen to live there and God had chosen to fellowship and to commune with his creatures. That was the place where God would walk and talk with man. And God made his beautiful creation and the apex of it all was man. God made man as the crowning jewel of all of his good creation and God placed man in that garden and God's desire was, God's intent, God's desire was to walk with man not only in the cool of the day as we read but also and especially to walk with man in covenant fellowship in the garden. Man was the crowning jewel of God's creation. But you know the story. When man seduced by the serpent, when man transgressed the law of God and became a sinner, he was driven out of paradise. By his own reckless disobedience, he had cut himself off from God, and the angels of God drove him out of that utopia, and as consequence, he now wanders about in the wilderness. Man being barred from the garden walks about in a world filled with sin and all of its horrible consequences, namely pain, sickness, death, tears, fears, and anxieties. Man's life on earth is now through a veil of tears. And that's what the Christian understands as his misery. His life on earth has become miserable from the cradle to the grave. All of life is only a vanity of vanities, but it, is, but it is not only that, it is also misery and miserable. And now understand with me why that is so. Because we need to understand that the greatest joy of man is to be in possession of and to be in communion with his creator God. His greatest misery is that as a result of sin, he's become an exile, alienated cut off from God. The creature has been cut off from fellowship with his creator and such a wandering exile finds no rest until he again finds his rest in God as was intended in his creation. The church father St. Augustine observed correctly in his confession, O Lord, thou hast made us for thyself and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Precisely, God created us to enjoy and to praise him, but in the fall, man cut himself off from God, and now man has no peace. He has no rest because he is alienated from God. And therein now, in that restlessness, lays the mystery of the misery of all of mankind. But our question, the question that remains is, how do you come to know your misery? And remember now, to, or in order to live and to die joyfully, in order to live and to die in the confident hope of eternal life, in other words, in order to find way, the way of reconciliation with God, man must first know of his miserable condition. And we notice that once again, the question is not given in broad, general, vague terms. The question is not what must be known about man's misery. Neither is the question, what does the Bible say? Or even, what does the church say about man's misery? No, all of those things are, of course, important. But the question here is personal. The question is, how do you come to know of your misery? The question is... 
How was it that a man like David, for example, was driven to crying out in despair, for I know my transgressions. My sins are always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. What was it that caused David to fall on his knees, to bury his face in his hands and to cry out in recognition of his sinful and miserable condition? What was it now that enabled him to cry out, Mea culpa, God, mea culpa, I am guilty, God, I am guilty. What was it now that enabled him to understand and make logical sense of his own hopelessness? What is it now that leads also you and me to see our own miserable, hopeless, and lost condition? What is it that enables us to come to know the greatness of our sin and misery? And the answer is given us here in our text of the Catechism from the Scriptures. It says, the law of God tells me. The law of God tells me. My dear people of God, gird up the loins of your mind with me, as Peter says. Gird up the loins of your mind with me and follow this with me for a moment because the concept is urgent. We know, of course, from the Bible that any conviction of sin that leads to repentance is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. We know that. The Spirit of God convinces the sinner of sin and judgment and drives him to the foot of the cross. So far, so good. We would all agree but what is often overlooked is that the scripture teaches us with equal vigor that the Holy Spirit uses means. He uses means to achieve that marvelous work of grace and the instrument chosen by God, the instrument determined by God to, for the Holy Spirit to use to drive men and women on their knees before the cross is the law of God. The law of God. That's what the word of God tells us, isn't it? Listen to Paul in Romans 3 verse 20. Through the law we became conscious of sin. Again, Romans 7 verse 7. I would not have known what sin was except for the law. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law would not have said to me, do not covet. Oh, how privileged then. Your position, people of God here in Salem, how privileged your position that you belong to a church that insists that God's law is read and preached regularly. So many churches have long ago abandoned that practice, and yet, and yet, and yet, according to Scripture, it is an instrument. No, I say that wrong. It is the instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit of God to cause us and to lead us to seeking the Savior. Understand this well now. As we try to put this together, man's misery has its origin in sin and all of its horrible consequences. And sin is anything that is not in accordance with God's law. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no consciousness or no awareness of sin. See now, incidentally, as an interjection, why faithful churches have always insisted that the law be read regularly before the congregation. That makes sense now, doesn't it? It's about the most loving thing. It is about the most loving thing that a church can do for her people. Of course it is. 
For you see, without the knowledge of the law, there can be no recognition of sin. And without the recognition of sin, there will be no need of a Savior. Why would you seek a Savior if you're not aware of what you need to be saved from? And if you're not driven to confessing your sin, you will die in your sin, and that will be an eternal death in hell. Again, gird up the lines of your mind and, and, and with me and continue to walk with me for a moment. For it's a very important concept and a principle here which we have before us here in this confession. A foundational and fundamental biblical truth is staring us here in the face. If only we will see it. Let me put it this way. Do you see, congregation, do you see the connection between churches who no longer read the law and spiritually stagnant or even dead churches? And that makes logical sense, doesn't it? If scripture teaches that without the law there is no awareness of sin, and if the law is withheld from the congregation, then it must be that the congregation will die spiritually. It can be no other way according to the Bible and that's precisely what we see all around us. The law of God is, is seen as being antiquated and it's removed from the worship services and slowly but surely such churches drift further and further away from the Lord eventually becoming apostate churches, dead churches. Praise God then, people of God, that you worship in and belong to a church which constantly points out the great need of man by faithfully laying upon you the demands of God's law every Sunday again. You see, according to your Bible, man's reasoning and man's experience, in other words, his own understanding, his own intellect, if you will, is not able to reveal to him the state of his deep misery because of the fall into sin. As the old McGuffey reader used to say, and I, I love to refer to it because it was taught me in grade three in the public school, in Adam's fall, he says in that, in that reader, in Adam's fall, we, we sinned all. And as a consequence of that fall, man's reasoning, man's reasoning, man's intellect has become corrupt. Man lost the excellent gift with which he was originally created, and now man cannot come to a, to, to a knowledge of his sin on his own apart from the law of God. The law of God is a mirror in which we see ourselves not as we were created, but as we have become through sin. And so the law reveals our every transgression and declares us to be guilty. Condemned. But, 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 but if we are to learn our misery from the law of God, and we, then we must know what that law requires of us. Follow with me. Matthew 22. Jesus was drawn into a discussion by the Pharisees. You know that story well, otherwise perhaps read it for your evening devotions. Chapter uh, 22 of Matthew the Pharisees, they had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, and now they plotted to put him to the test and trap him with the question, tell us now, Jesus, tell us. Tell us which is now the greatest commandment of the law. And notice that in response, Jesus does not give a long list of thou shalt or thou shalt nots. No. <coughs> he doesn't even go through the Ten Commandments. He gives a summary of that law. He goes to the very heart of the matter, rather, rather, 
want to say he lays bare the heart of man. We hear him in Matthew 22, you shall love. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. He says, this is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So the summary and the chief content of the law then is love. Love for God and love for neighbor. In other words, we could say the first commandment reads, thou shalt love. The second commandment, thou shalt love. The third commandment reads, thou shalt love. And the fourth and the fifth and the same is true for all ten of the commandments. Thou shalt love. My dear sense of God, we need to pay close attention to the word of God here. You see, many modern-day Christians as well as contemporary antinomians, and antinomians means anti-law. Many modern Christians and contemporary antinomians have twisted the words of Christ, and they want us to know that what Christ is teaching here is that the law is no longer of any import, and that rather it has been replaced with the law of love. Contemporary Christianity, when I say contemporary, and I use the word often, it simply means modern-day Contemporary Christianity would have us know that we are no longer under the Old Testament law, but under the New Testament law of grace and love. And they want us to know that any doctrinal discussion, as well as any standing in the defense of confessional statements, is not only unnecessary, but according to many, it is counterproductive and even disobedient to the words of Christ found here in Matthew 22. They would argue that we are to have no creeds, no confessions, no creeds but Christ. Their creeds divide Christendom, but Christ unites. Sounds so noble. And they teach us, they would teach us that it's not required of the Christian church or the New Testament believer to, to dot our I's or cross our theological T's. All that is required according to modern Christianity is to confess some kind of general or generic love for the Lord. And then to demonstrate that love by showing a zeal for the deprived or the underprivileged neighbor, usually in some kind of soup kitchen endeavor or preferably in some faraway foreign land. The law then has been reduced to some vague generality for the common humanitarian good. And God, they say, is not concerned about doctrine. He's not concerned about doctrinal statements of faith or such details. All that matters to God, they say, is that we love one another. My dear people of God, do not be deceived. That's not the language of your Bible. Such an understanding of God's word demonstrates folly, great folly. Properly understood, the words of Christ given in the summary of the law serve to only heighten an awareness of our miserable condition. For you see, we hear Christ in another place telling us, if you love me, Hear me well. If you love me, says Jesus, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, true love for Christ comes to an expression in keeping of the law. And to suggest that we can ignore doctrinal distinctives as long as we demonstrate a general love for our fellow man, especially the disadvantaged and the underprivileged, does violence to God's own word. Such an approach is nothing more than a presentation of a, of a social gospel. But it is not the gospel of God's love and grace in Christ. The gospel is given us in scripture. The gospel that is given us in scripture demands that we know and we keep God's law. 
all of God's law. But having come to know that we are obligated to keeping all of God's law, that knowledge then drives us to despair because the question is not how seriously do I attempt to keep God's law, but rather the question is how much do I love God's law? What is my motive for keeping it? The condition of my heart must be of such a nature that I strive to keep his commandments because my heart is overflowing with love for him. Follow this with me. The question is, what does God's law require? And then the unequivocal answer is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Love for God with all of our essence and with all of our being is required. All of our thoughts, our words, our deeds, actions, inclinations must be expressions of love for God to the, to the glory of his name. That's the first and great commandment. Love for God is always first. Love for God above love for neighbor. Love for God above love for spouse. Above love for parents or children. Love for God above love, above love for any other creature in all of creation. This is the first and great commandment. But there's a second like unto it, and it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God is first, but that love for God must now, out of necessity of the matter, must come to expression in love for our neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Whom am I to love? And although it is correct to identify all of humanity as my neighbor, we must consider as neighbors, first of all, the people who cross our paths daily, in our homes, at work, at school, at play, and particularly our brothers and sisters in the household of faith, in the congregation. All of the people whom God places on our way, to all of those we must express Christian love and compassion. People of God, the Lord demands of us that we love our neighbors. Think about that with me for a moment. Love not only for those who love us in return, but also those who cause us grief and pain and sorrow. In other words, even those who have done you harm or injury, love your neighbor, humble yourself, consider yourself the least, and love him despite his injustice towards you. That's what the Lord requires. What does it profit us if we love only those who love us first? Nothing at all. Even the world does that. Rather, we are to love all of our neighbors, not even just tolerate them, but love. As the Catechism says in Lord's Day 42, love for neighbors is that I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good to guard and to advance his good name and that I treat him as I would have others treat me. It's now that kind of love for neighbor flowing out of your love for God that is required from us in the law of God, two commandments, two sides of the same coin that can never be separated. He who truly loves his God will out of necessity love his neighbor. For love for neighbor is rooted in and springs from a love for God. It will not be possible, people of God, it will not be possible to love God. Uh, 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 love for God, uh, it will not be possible to love God and to yet quietly 
despise or even fail to love one of your brothers and sisters. It will not be possible, scripturally, it will not be possible to say that you love God while at the same time you allow yourself to remain alienated from others in the congregation. We need to remember that. And finally, having learned what is required of us, the Catechism asks the last question of this, Lord, is can you live up to this perfectly? The question reads, can, can you, not do you, but can you keep all of God's perfectly? Not do you, but can you? And then the answer given us reads, no. No, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. That's what comes naturally to us as consequence of the fall. That's what comes naturally to us. I have a tendency to hate God and my neighbor. A damning indictment upon us, isn't it? God's law was written upon the tablets of the heart of man in creation. Adam and Eve not only knew God's law perfectly, but it was their joy to keep it perfectly. But you know the story. Sin came into the world, bringing with it a revolution that was radical and complete. Man, the crowning jewel of God's creation, created to love, now inclined to hate. Created to love God and neighbor, now inclined by nature to hate his maker and his fellow man. And as a result of sin, that law written by our Heavenly Father upon our hearts has become clouded, distorted, Man has lost his excellent gifts given in creation, including the ability to observe God's law, as he has been left with only small remains thereof, which, however, are still sufficient before the Lord, still sufficient to leave man without excuse. People of God, capture this with me now. To such a man, to this alien now, to this exile, the question is now asked, can you keep this law perfectly? And notice the words, perfectly. The question is not, are you outwardly giving expression to observing the law? The question is not even, are you doing your best to keep the commandments of God? The question is not even, are you trying? But rather the question is, is the condition of your heart of such a nature that you observe all of God's law perfectly as your expression for love for God? That's the question. Remember with me that the question is asked of and answered by the, the born again covenant child of God. The question is being asked and the answer given by the same Christian who earlier had cried out jubilantly, that, that same Christian who says, my only comfort in life and death is that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And now that same Christian, having received the covenant promise, now cries out in despair, oh God, be merciful, for God commands me to keep all of his law perfectly. He commands me to love God above all else and my neighbor as myself. And I do not, for I cannot, I cannot love perfectly. Perfectly. In fact, I am inclined by nature. What comes naturally to me is to hate God and to hate my neighbor. 
Can you keep all of these things? Can you live your whole life, body and soul, heart and mind and will, with all of your power at all times, in all places, at home, in the school, in the office or the shop, on your farm, in your kitchen, and on the street, and in your marriage, and in your family, in all areas of all times of your life? Can you live every waking, breathing moment of your life in perfect love for God and neighbor? That's what the Lord requires. And he will accept nothing less from you. Are you motivated every waking moment of your life by the principle of love for God? And out of that love, are you also expressing love for your neighbor? Can you keep all of those things perfectly? That's the question. That is, do you do, you do all things without flaw or blunder, without ever being motivated by anything other than a love for God? Do you wake up with that love for God in the morning? Do you go to sleep with it at night? Is it the force that drives you in all of your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your actions and inclinations? That's the question. And the Catechism insists that we answer, and correctly so, for you see, it must be that or nothing. Such love for God and such love for neighbor is what the law demands of us. And our failure to love God perfectly makes us the object of eternal condemnation. And so the catechism demands answer. Can you keep all of these things perfectly? And again, the question is not do you, but can you? Are you able to? The answer of the Christian is I do not. For I cannot, I have not the power nor the ability to love God as I ought. People of God, that's the despair that I referred to earlier. And it's now precisely that point that the catechism wants to drive home to us this afternoon. The catechism insists of us that we know of our own spiritual bankruptcy and inability. And that's a hard confession to make, isn't it? Inclined to hate God and my neighbor. Such statements don't sit well with us, do they? We would rather say, yeah, you know, man is basically good. Instead of saying that man naturally hates God and man, we would be more inclined to say that man naturally seeks after God and tries to seek his neighbor's well-being haters of God, haters of man. Such a confession cuts to the very bone and marrow of contemporary man and has been an offense and a stumbling block for many in their search for God. And tragically, in their search, they abandoned the scripture's definition of man and they sought to maintain their own dignity, their own self-esteem. The natural unregenerate, meaning non-born again, the natural unregenerate man is offended at such a low view of himself. He prefers his own philosophy. The majority report among contemporary Christianity is, oh, indeed, indeed, man may fall occasionally. He may blunder. He may make mistakes. There may be even some who habitually make mistakes, maybe even call it sin if you like. But inherently, basically, man is good. <coughs> And tragically, that's not what the Bible tells us. 
But, but for us, the question may never be, how do we see the condition of man? But what does the Bible teach us of him? Or how does God define man? That's the only assessment that really matters. Not what do we think of ourselves, but how does God see us? Listen to Paul in Romans 1, verse 30. Haters of God. Romans 8, verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Titus 3, 3. We too lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's how the word of God describes the condition of man. Haters of God, haters of one another, hostile to God, failing to submit to the law of God, breaking God's law because he cannot submit to it as consequence of the fall in the Garden of Eden. What a dismal portrait is painted of us. Perfect obedience is required. God still today brooks no compromise commanded to love perfectly, yet unable to fulfill our obligation. Perfect love for God and man is commanded, yet haters of God, haters of fellow man. People God, if the Holy Scriptures would tell us no more and leave us there, we would certainly be driven to utter despair. If God in his great love for his people would not have provided himself as remedy, we of all people would be most to be pitied and we would have been cut off from him for eternity. We would be yet today without God and without hope in the world. But, 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 out of sheer grace, motivated by his own perfect love, he has given us his law in order that accompanied by his Holy Spirit, we are enabled to see ourselves as we really are. And through that knowledge, God brings us to our knees at the cross in order to draw us unto himself for time and eternity. It is only when God has opened our hearts and our eyes, it is only when God has shown us our sin that we're able to come to see a need for a savior. And to that end, God has given us his law. And when in that mirror we see our sinful reflection in contrast to God's perfection, only then are we able to understand our need for a savior. Only those who have learned their sin and misery can know their need of a savior. And only such people can say, I belong to Christ. He has fulfilled my obligation in perfect obedience to God's law. What I am required but unable to do, he has done for me. Therefore, he is my only hope, my only comfort in life and in death. May it be so for each of us and our children. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, we confess how blessed is he whose trespass has freely been forgiven, whose sin is wholly covered before the face of heaven. Blessed he to whom Jehovah will not impute his sin, who has a guileless spirit whose heart is pure within. While I kept guilty silence, my strength was spent with grief. 
Thy hand was heavy on me, my soul found no relief. But when I owned my trespass, my sin hid not from thee. When I confessed transgression, then thou forgavest me.